Hello, and welcome to the Without Exception podcast. My name is Josiah Ott, and on this podcast, I seek to share practical content for everyday Christians. My hope is that I can help you live out your faith each day without exception. Welcome to episode 27 of Without Exception. Thank you for listening. Today, I want to share an Old Testament story with you uh, from the reign of King David. And today's episode is titled The Deception at Rabbah. So I want to begin by sharing a portion of scripture uh, detailing one of King David's great military victories from the Old Testament. And then we're going to back up and I'm going to kind of dive into some stuff here. And I hope it is going to be a blessing to you. I hope it'll be edifying and a challenge to you as well. So we're going to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verse 26, and it says this. It says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And then he goes on, uh, goes back to Jerusalem. They put the people to labor. And for the Israelites, it is a great victory. David's army, they went, they conquered the city named Rabbah in the territory of the Ammonites who had been causing problems for Israel. And they won. It was this great military victory. And it's an exciting time. But this portion of scripture I just read to you is actually the end of a story. It's not the beginning of a story. And in fact, I don't even want to call it the end of a story. It's the end of a portion of a story. And so then you go and realize, well, if this is the end, you know, where does it begin? And in light of this, is this really a, a victory that we should be proud of? Well, I wanted to ask and take a second and think, and if you don't know, it's okay. Uh, do you know what happened while Joab was fighting in Rabbah? Do you know what happened immediately before David went in and conquered the city? So this portion of scripture that I just read to you was from the middle to end of chapter 12, but this, uh, this battle actually begins at the beginning of chapter 11. And so I want to pick up at the beginning and kind of give some more context to this great military victory that David and his army achieved. And this part might be a bit more familiar. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David had uh, committed adultery with with Bathsheba. I don't know. It's it's hard to say because the text doesn't say it might have been more like rape. To be honest, we don't really know the uh, the extent. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to imagine it was consensual when the king goes and takes you from your home and brings you to his uh, to his home. It's kind of kind of awful, really. It's not kind of awful. It's absolutely awful. But we realize in this story that 
that David sent his, his chief military guy, Joab, out to this battle, out to go fight against the city of Rabbah. And we, we see this intro. And a lot of times it can be really easy to get hung up on, you know, the, the incidents with Bathsheba and all the negative things that come immediately afterwards and neglect the fact that the story actually ends. And again, I don't want to say it fully ends, but the beginning of this narrative actually wraps up in chapter 12 with them conquering Rabbah. And you realize this and it's like, well, if you look at it just from a military perspective, this story is a great success. And interestingly enough, if you read this account, it has a parallel in the book of, uh, of First Chronicles. I believe it's First Chronicles. I forgot to put the chapter in here, but it's got a parallel in the book of Chronicles. And you'll see that David stayed home, said that in the spring of the year, kings of God battle. David stayed behind, sent Joab to besiege Rabbah. And then in like the next verse in the account in Chronicles, Joab takes is taking the city, sends for David. David comes in and gets the credit and conquers Rabbah. And then they all go back to Jerusalem and everything's all hunky-dory. And that's the account in Chronicles. So militarily, that's what happened. But there was this other set of circumstances, these other things that were actually happening behind the scenes. So I, I like that the, the Chronicles passage shows you kind of David's public life, how things were going. Now, ironically enough, it goes on to talk about the pestilence that came when David numbered the people, he disobeyed the Lord. So it didn't seek to paint David in a perfect light, but it missed this big, big issue where David has uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then not only that, right, he goes and he tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah, her husband, home, tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Uriah is uh, is the opposite of David, what is known in uh, biblical studies as a foil. So he's a foil to David because he's displayed as this honorable man, whereas David is dishonorable. David took another man's wife. He brought Uriah home. Uriah won't even go sleep with his own wife while the men are out in the field. And so you can compare the two of them and Uriah is honorable. Uriah was actually one of David's 30 mighty men. He wasn't just some random guy in the army. He was actually one of David's like real deal, great military guys. And we see this, this passage and things go south from here. And then Nathan, the prophet comes in and confronts David, right? Because this, God was upset with this whole thing and he confronts him. David ends up repenting. And then he ends up taking Bathsheba as his wife, as Uriah was now dead. And we see here that publicly, everything was going great, but privately things were not going great. And here's the thing, David's great sin and his family issues, they end up, you know, causing this huge, huge problem for his family. And, and you realize that it really, it sets up this train of events or the, where David's life steadily goes downhill from here. And it's interesting that so many people don't notice the public aspect to this story. In fact, I never noticed the end of the story until one of my previous professors at, at LBC pointed it out to me. And in a class, they were like, you know, this is the end of the story. They conquer the city. They go in. I was like, man, that's that's crazy. Like, it, it, it's completely different than what you would see when you just read it like one chapter at a time. And you realize that like the whole story ends on this military highlight. But it really shows, this This whole passage shows that there can be such a difference between someone's public life and their private life because publicly David was a hero. He got this crown. Everybody loved him. But privately, his life was an absolute wreck. And then we see from this, this story 
that there's this principle that I want to share, and this is kind of the focus of the the episode here, is that God's forgiveness does not necessarily guarantee the removal of consequences for our sin. I firmly believe, as the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we are, are if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins. Right? If we repent, God will forgive us. But that doesn't guarantee that our life is going to go on as if nothing happened. Sometimes, I mean, again, there's there can be a big difference between maybe a small, I don't want to, I don't, I don't like saying big or small, but like a smaller sin or, or a tiny mistake versus, you know, um, summoning a woman and having sex with her and then having her husband killed and covering the whole thing up. That's pretty, that's really bad. But it, the point is there's a lot of times consequences for our sin. And just because God forgives us, God forgives David, David's restored. David is even remembered as a man after God's own heart. And I think I'm going to focus in on that in the next podcast episode, actually. But he, even though he's forgiven, he still has these consequences that he has to face. And I think in our lives, if we are willing to look at and see that we, you know, even if God forgives our sin, that we might still have to deal with these other things. I think it's a really good way to help us prevent um, sin in our life and to remain obedient to God, to realize that even his forgiveness does not guarantee everything will work out. And so we see David's life, everything's going good uh, overall. His kingdom is growing. I mean, there's nothing really bad going on. The trajectory is going up. But after this sin, we see a series of tragic events in David's life. And I don't really think it's a coincidence by any stretch of the imagination. So I want to list off here. Um, I, I have eight different things. You might be able to combine some of them and say, really, it's five or six different things. But here is a list of things that happens in David's life after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. The first thing is that a child is conceived. That's the reason that Uriah was supposed to come home and try to cover things up is because all of a sudden Bathsheba was pregnant while her husband was at war. And so he brings the the husband home to try to cover it up. Well, so she ends up having this baby and the baby gets sick and David intercedes for the baby and, you know, all these things. And the baby dies as part of, uh, part of the punishment for David's sin. So the first thing is that he has to deal with the loss of this child. And then I think it's right in the beginning of the next chapter. One of the next things that actually happens is David has a son named Amnon. And Amnon has a half-sister named Tamar. And Amnon loves Tamar, loves her. He's got this in- insane lust for his sister named Tamar. So much so that he has her bring some food into his room and he tricks her, pretending he's sick, and he rapes her, like brutally rapes her and sends her away in shame. And this is one of the first things that we see is that after David commits a sin, he starts to have some real family problems. And have you ever wondered where Amnon might have learned this sort of behavior from? If you realize that he had this this strong desire that he could not turn down, that he had to have it satisfied, even if it made somebody else the victim of, of this terrible um, terrible tragedy, yet he probably learned that from his his father, right? Because that's essentially the same exact thing that David did with Bathsheba. Now we don't know, I mean, the, the dialogue makes it sound a lot worse with what Amnon did, but both of them had this desire for a woman that was not legitimate. And even, well, and the interesting thing is Tamar, they were half half siblings. She even said like, look, we can do this right. Like whatever, you know, I'm sure that he would give you, give me to you as a wife, whatever. And no, he could not tell himself no. And I think he learned that probably from David. And it all started with this sin that David committed. 
then afterwards, right, David's life is steadily moving downhill. Things are getting worse. Afterwards, his son Absalom, another son, uh, hates Amnon for what he did. And so he conspires, eventually kills Amnon, and then Absalom runs away. Eventually, he incites a rebellion, tries to conquer the throne of, of David. David ends up on the run from his own son. Like things are steadily getting worse and worse for David. And then uh, David's military commander, Joab, ends up killing his son, Absalom, whom he loved. He loved his son, Absalom, so much. And he's killed by by Joab, the military commander. So all these things, right, steadily going downhill. And then ultimately, uh, David had a son named Solomon who succeeded the throne, which was a good thing. Solomon was incredibly wise. He had great understanding and he builds a temple for God, which is all great. But then Solomon had some insane issues with women as well. He had, I believe, a a thousand women total or a thousand wives. I I can't remember off the top of my head. He had all these women in his life. And where did he get this problem from? Like, again, everyone has to own up to their own sin. I'm not saying that it was David's fault that these guys had this problem. But I think you can kind of follow this pattern through David's family where it began with him. And then these wives, all of these wives, they end up turning Solomon's heart away from the true God. And when they turn his heart away, you know, he starts worshiping these other gods in his old age. And as a result of this, God is so upset that he promises that the kingdom of Israel will be split into two kingdoms. And then it's after um, Solomon passes, Rehoboam takes the throne. And it's during his reign that the kingdom is split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And this all happens as a result of Solomon's idolatry, which happened as a result of his wives, which may have had something to do with the fact that David, his father, had this terrible model put forth for all of his children. So you look at this and you're like, you know, if David would have controlled himself and or if maybe if he would have gone to battle, first of all, where he was supposed to be. But if he would have controlled himself and not summoned another man's wife to have sex with her, like. That's awful, right? And if, if he wouldn't have done this, how many of these other terrible, terrible things could have been avoided? And I think sometimes in life we look at things and like, you know, the, oh yeah, there's consequences for sin. But it's easy sometimes to think that, oh, maybe that doesn't apply to me. I don't know if you've ever ever had a time in your life where there's a rule or there's a law or there's, there's something, or even like a natural law, right? Like, oh, this doesn't apply to me, it'll be all right. It makes me think of uh, last year, around this time, actually, I was training for my first half marathon. And every video you watch about running online, every article you read about running online, literally everything, it all has one thing in common, I would say. And they warn you about a thing called overtraining, where if you go from being a couch potato to trying to be a marathon runner in 15 minutes, uh, it doesn't work. You know, you have to steadily increase the amount of miles you run a week. And they say, you know, you should only increase, um, I think it's like 10% at at the most, or, you know, you get up over, over 10 miles then, or whatever, up closer, you can increase like one mile a week to your long run. So you do a long run on a Saturday morning or something like that, your longest run of the week. And you can do like maybe one extra mile per week, but you can't go from, maybe I run two miles a week, to, well, I'm going to start running 15 miles a week in a bunch of short increments, and I'm going to build up the stamina and it'll be all right, because your body can't handle it. You have to steadily increase your workload. And I had all this material that was constantly telling me, like, you shouldn't do this. You need to take it slow, whatever. 
And I just, I'm, I'm a goal oriented person. So if I have a goal, I'm, I'm striving for it. And I did some math and I was like, you know, I think if this all works out correctly, I could probably do a half marathon in like the middle of October. And then I look it up online and it's like one of the closest ones to us. And it's the cheapest, which is perfect for me because I'm known by a lot of people to be a little bit cheap. So it's like, it was everything. And it was like the stars aligned, right? It was perfect. I'm going to do this half marathon. But there was a season where I'm like, you know, I'm increasing my weekly mileage a lot more than they recommend you doing, but it'll be okay. I still feel fine. You know, like everything's gonna be okay. And here I am uh, almost a year later, I've got this problem with my foot and it's been a problem ever since, like, I think the month before I, about a year ago now, because I ran it in, in October of last year, it's been a problem about ever since. And where did it come from? Well, it came from this overtraining where I did not, you know, I had this goal and I wanted to do it. And they say, well, you should only increase this much. And I said, well, it's all right. I'm just going to do what I want to do, even though that's dumb. And so then I had this, this tendon strain in my foot and it's just not been right ever since. And I, I went to a foot doctor. I got it looked at. He gave me some steroids and some stuff and some advice. And I did that for a little while and said, he said, you should take a little bit of time off running and I, when I got COVID, I didn't run for three months and I figured I'd be back and I'd be fine. My foot would be fine. And it wasn't. And so finally I went to him and he's like, I can't believe that after three months off, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't better. And I said, yeah, me neither. And so it still bothers me today. And I actually currently am not doing any, any physical exercise, no running or anything. And it's because I was waiting for this to get better all because I thought I was kind of beyond the rules. Everybody says you shouldn't do this. I'm like, well, I feel fine. And the thing is, I felt fine until I wasn't, right? Yeah, you know, I, I had this thing in my life where I was like, you know, I feel fine. It'll be okay. I could just push through. And then I started to develop this pain, you know, two weeks or a month before the race. And I'm like, well, I'm this close. I got to push through and get there. But to this day, it's a problem. And ironically, they say it, it's a problem that mostly affects uh, middle-aged, overweight women. And that, you know, that just, that makes me feel amazing. You know, I'm, I'm a 26 and I'm a man and I'm, fairly skinny. Right. And I'm like, Oh, thanks. You know, like it was one of those things, ironically enough, I'm like, that that's just, that makes me so happy. Like, perfect. I fit into this perfect category. Like I'm the, I'm the classic person that gets this problem, but it was, it was the consequence of me not listening to this thing that really does apply to me. I'm not the exception. Right. And so there's, there's consequences for our sin. And we feel that sometimes, at least I did in the past where it's like, you know, if I, if I disobey God, it'll be okay. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll I'll live a different life. And this was years ago, but I'll live a different life and I'll just pray, you know, and I'll repent. And I mean, really, if you're living a certain way repeatedly and you're repenting, you're really not repenting. You know, there, there is that, but you also have to deal with the fact that there will end up being consequences for your sin. And you're not an exception. You can't just go on and living, you know, a life contrary, especially people that live a life publicly and privately, they're different, especially people in leadership. You hear all the time of Christian leaders that are falling and, you know, it's this big thing. And it's like, well, it didn't just suddenly happen. A lot of times it had been going on uh, behind the scenes for a considerable period of time, but they did not know, like nobody knew about it. And then when all of a sudden, when people got a, a little sneak peek into the private life, you know, their, their leadership, their empire, whatever came crashing to the ground. And it's not just for leaders. It's for everybody. If you're a Christian, you know, we, we all need to be living lives of integrity. And that doesn't mean any of us are perfect, but it's important to realize that sin does have consequences. David's sin had dire consequences. And again, it was this big, terrible thing. I mean, not I can't say that every sin is equal to that. I mean, all sin is in a way equal. J- James says that if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. There is that. But I mean, 
you get you get the idea, right? But you look at this and realize that David's sin had a, had a lot of consequences, you know, and it ended up affecting his whole family. Again, especially when you look at his son Amnon and what happened there, and it's realizing like that probably came directly from David and David's view of women. This just this consumeristic, like, oh, they're just an object and I can just, you know, she's out there, she's another man's husband, but it doesn't matter. And you and you realize that it ended up mattering a lot. And it really it took David's uh kingdom and just and destroyed it basically. I mean, from the inside out, his stuff started crumbling and they didn't get conquered by anybody else. And you know, he got to hand it off to to his son. And in some ways it was okay, but ultimately it was a huge wreck. So I just want to encourage you to be careful to put up safeguards against sin in your life. Um, sometimes people, again, as I said, they feel free, like it's okay to dabble. Worst case scenario, they can confess to God, he'll forgive us. But God's grace is not meant to be a license for your sin, for my sin. And there are oftentimes there's these consequences for secret sins that will come into play later and it will come to the light. And so for a number of reasons, it is best to live a life of integrity before the Lord. So that's what I want to challenge you with today. And so with that, I thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Without Exception podcast. I pray that this episode has been edifying to you and that it is something you can put into practice in your own life. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with others. If you were listening on Apple, I would love it if you would leave a review. It helps with the exposure of the show. That said, I pray you have an awesome week. And until I see you next time, let's live out our faith each day without exception.